Well, 1 Corinthians 13 is where we're going to be. And probably Paul's most famous chapter. I mean, uh, pretty much everybody kind of understands. If you grew up in church at all, 1 Corinthians 13 deals with, with love. And uh, it's one of those unique sections of Scripture that really just stand on its own. I, I, I've never really preached from it. I've never, I, I maybe once. It's just such a familiar passage, but you simply can read it and you, you got it. I mean, anyone can read this and understand what he's saying. It's not, there's nothing complicated about this, which is the beauty of it. Um, it has a great depth to it from a literary standpoint. It has some unique movements to it, which I'm not going to worry about. Um, probably the thing that I really want to stress to start off with is that 1 Corinthians 13 isn't a standalone chapter. We treat it that way, but it's not. It's the middle section of 12, 13, and 14 where Paul is talking about a problem at Corinth, as we've said throughout this entire Corinthian study, the lack of unity. <clears throat> as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, um, the, one of the, the key problems is that there were a group of people in the church who thought that because they had the ability, the gift to speak in tongues and or interpret, that that gave them a superiority over everyone else. And with that sense of superiority, it caused huge divisions in the church. Paul is correcting that problem. We saw last couple of weeks in chapter 12, laying out the groundwork of spiritual gifts. They come from the Holy Spirit. We all are gifted. Nobody comes up with it on their own. <clears throat> Next week and the following week, we're going to see at length Paul deal with the whole speaking in tongues issue. And I hope to bring some clarity uh, to some of that. I know it's confusing and oftentimes misunderstood, but I hope to bring some clarity to that. In the middle of all this, Paul talks about what's most important, and it is love. Now, let's say a few things to start off with. And I've shared this before, especially on Sundays, but uh, in the New Testament, the Greek, there are two main words used for love. One was a common Greek word. Um, we get our term Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, phileo. Um, it, is, it is a term of great affection. Uh, sometimes it's simplified into friendship love, but it's, it's a word of warmth. It, it's, it's, it's the kind of love, you know, a, a, a group of kids grow up together. They have that special bond as they grow through life. You have that. And there's just a love. There's a concern. There's a care. There's a warmth. There's an honesty. It's a, it's a different kind of relationship. That's, that's in the New Testament. Sometimes it's used in other capacities. In Greek culture, that word was pretty common. The most basic word in Greek culture for love was eros. Our term erotic comes from that. And um, it's, it's a love that speaks <coughs> of relationships between men and women. But it, it also speaks just of a certain kind of self-focus. It's never used in the New Testament. It is, it is a word that, the kind of love that we might say that I, I, you know, I love my wife and I expect her to love me that way. There, there's a reciprocal expectation. 
Um, it, it is selfish, not necessarily in a bad sense. I don't want it, it can be bad, but, but it is just this general work. We use, it's the, it's the a Greek equivalent of most every time the word love is used in our culture today. You know, we have every, you know, you know, love story, that's it. Uh, all the songs with the word love in it, uh, you know, that, it's that concept, basically. Uh, all the Hallmark movies, that's the love that's used. Uh, all of that stuff. And uh, it's a neutral, it's neither good nor bad, it, it just depends on how we do it. But the word that is used uniquely in the New Testament is the word agape, the noun, agapao, the verb. It is rare outside the New Testament. Outside the New Testament, it's used mostly in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, into, you know, to put it into Greek, it's used a little bit there. Outside of that, it's, it's, it's just a rare, it's like so rare, it's really hard to say what it meant. But in the New Testament, it is the key dominant word. Sometimes the word phileo can be interchanged with that, but, but basically, Agape is the opposite of eros, whereas eros is selfish, not necessarily in a bad sense, but it's just selfish. Agape is selfless. So it's used of God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God showed his great love and that we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, no greater love does a man have than to lay down his life for his friends. It is a love that is unconditional, and it primarily is a love of giving. It, it gives regardless of circumstances. When Jesus, when, when the New Testament writers quote Jesus, usually they're using this word. When Jesus spoke, spoke Aramaic, but they put it in the Greek. So when they say, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love God, love others. They wrote it with agape in mind. Love God, love others totally. And so it's important to get that. There's just no concept even like it. I mean, we might think the way we love our children is that way. But the, the truth of the matter is, while we love our children unconditionally, and we love them that way, we love them that way because they are our kids. I mean, think about it, some of you in particular. If your kids weren't your kids, <laughs> would you love them? Don't want to look at anybody. Would you love your kids if they weren't your kids? Joe, I mean, think about it. Well, of course we love our kids. And, and there is that sense of agape there, I get that. But what we're talking about is loving someone when there's no reason to love them except for the fact that God loves them. And they're created in the image of God just like I am. And so we love them. And think about it. And that makes a difference. And I know so with your kids, you, know, you love them, and your spouse, you love them that way, but there's a reason for it. And it's, it's odd. Y'all fix, I don't pick on y'all fix and have a kid. You're going to love that kid that way. But if you accidentally in the hospital, they get that kid mixed up with someone else, and you take the wrong kid home, do you realize you will love that kid that's not yours? <laughs> Think about that when you take your kid home from the hospital. <laughs> Joe, you want to minister to them? You and Josh, when we're through, you might want to counsel them a little bit. I just probably messed up with their brain. We're about to have a whole bunch of kids born this spring. I mean, they're coming everywhere. 
We counted the other day. I think we're six that we know of. Just one, boom, 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 right after the other. COVID's been great for attendance. So 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men, men of angels, but have not love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now there's, there's a certain amount of depth to these three verses. Um, that, you know, you can go and, you know, you, and I know guys preach it and they go into great, great detail. It's really, it's just take kind of simple. Uh, but put it in the context. So he's talking about love. He starts off, remember, <coughs> he's dealt already a lot with prophecy or preaching or proclaiming the word of God. Tongues is the issue. And so he, he's kind of starting off that way. He says, look, if I have the ability to speak the tongues of men and of angels. So there's debate here, what does tongue mean? Uh, glossa, you know, uh, does it mean languages, which most of the time the word tongue means languages? Or does it mean ecstatic utterances, like in speaking in tongues, which we're going to see uh, more next week? And, and so, but it probably means both. If I can speak in the tongues of men, that's just different languages, or of angels, the holy speech, whatever. If I can do that, but I don't have the capacity to love people. Paul says, I'm just a bunch of noise. It's a glong or a clanging cymbal that probably refers um, to the pagan worship practices where um, they might call people somehow to worship or sacrifice, which is banging gongs and cymbals. It is not a reference to the contemporary service when the drummer gets a little carried away. It's not that. So, Brian, you're good. But uh, if I was playing it, it would be. But uh, I would like us to bring a gong out sometimes. I think that would be really good. We had a saxophone Sunday. He won't do a flute, but he'll do a saxophone for some reason. A gong would be cool. So, I mean, just if, if, if I was to play and just bang on those cymbals, it'd be, it'd be just noise. Mike does it. Or um, one, of the other, one of the other guys does it. Brian does it. Theodorson or even Josh when we get down to our fifth uh, drummer. There's, there's music there. Without love, it doesn't, listen, it doesn't matter how good a speaker I may or may not be. If there is no love for you, it's just noise. And there are a lot of churches where it's just noise. Yeah. And now, I'll be honest, I have to work really hard sometimes to love all of you. But those I struggle with, I just picture somebody else and so it helps me. <laughs> If I can prophesy, if I can preach, proclaim the word of God, but no love. Well, I mean, I'm nothing. I can have faith to move mountains, but don't have love. What benefit is that? Even if I take on, I have knowledge, tremendous knowledge. All those things, you say, man, I'd really like to have a preacher that's pretty good at proclaiming the word of God, pretty smart. And uh, has great faith. That would be a good preacher. Maybe one day you'll have one. Just like that. But if they don't love, they're nothing. And he even says, I could give away all my possessions. 
And I can swing my body to be burned and sacrifice my body. But without love, nothing. <coughs> so, love is fundamental to our faith. And here's the thing. In a church setting, remember, this is in a church setting. This is not just about individuals. Operative within our church, there needs to be agape, love. Not the love the culture has. I'm writing my sermon today. You know, at the end of it, I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, the culture always says you got to love like, you know, Jesus loves, and they're always telling us how we have to love. Well, okay, if you're going to love like Jesus loves, that's, that's an unbelievable sacrifice on your part. So the thing about it is without the ability to love, these things that happen in the church that all seem good, Paul says, are nothing. <clears throat> he then begins to describe positive and negative what love is. Every time I read verse 4 of those five attributes, excuse me, three of those I don't do so well. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, verse 4, I hate verse 4. Love is patient. That ain't me. Love is kind. It's not jealous. I'm good on that. Love does not brag. Mm, problem. And love is not arrogant. Three out of five. Every day. I say, Lord, help me be patient. You can imagine. You know, patience. Oh, man, Lord, I need patience. If, if, listen, if you worked with our staff, you'd want patience too. <laughs> Lord, help me not to be full of pride. It helped me not to be arrogant. There's a little bit of difference. <clears throat> Pride is an attitude of superiority over other people. I'm fundamentally better than them. I mean, arrogance is, a, is an attitude of superiority. I am fundamentally better. Pride is a boasting of accomplishments. Man, love doesn't do that. Love is also kind and not jealous, which I, you know, I don't struggle with the jealousy any much. Um, Kindness, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm probably not very kind. Yeah, just look at verse four. <laughs> Think about how that is. That should be our prayer every day. It is not act unbecomely. No, it, that's a weird word, unbecomely. This means it acts right. It doesn't. People who love don't act in ways. They don't create scenes. They're not unseemly. They're not. They don't cause trouble. They're, they don't cause division. You know, they're, they're not that way. <coughs> Does not seek its own. He's not selfish. Not put self first. Is not provoked. Well, that's tough. Does not take into account wrong suffers. Provoked and wrong suffers similar. And I'm not, I don't like in lists. I've told you many times, I don't try to break down lists into small components. Lists are meant to be comprehensive, not exhaustive. Just take it kind of at face value its whole. But you ever met people who are easily provoked? You, know, you can push their buttons. And some people that hold on to wrongs. I mean, there are people who can remember every slight. Now, if you're a pro football quarterback, and you want to remember the 32 teams that passed on you for five rounds of the NFL draft, and your name is Tom Brady. That's not such a bad deal. 
But in my relationship with you, I don't need to remember what you did. No, I don't need to hold that against you. I need to forgive. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. But what does it do? It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Another word of what love does. Love wants truth, and love wants things to be done in a way that God would want them done. There's endurance, kind of like what you're having to do with my talking. There's that, there's that sense of hope and faith. In other words, it's not that love is optimistic, but love sees the value of people, and it sees the value of circumstances that you're going through. When, when you're dealing with difficult times, especially as a church, and there may be struggles. Love allows you to see a way to get through all that with the fellowship and people intact. Um, every church goes through struggles. That's what, remember, they're talking to a church. And love gives you the capacity to see all the value of the people that you may struggle with it allows you to see the importance, the giftedness of those people, that they matter. So here is his church at Corinth. And they're, <clears throat> they're being torn apart by this superior attitude. And Paul is saying, you know, if you have love, you see the value of everyone in their giftedness. You see the value of all the people teaching the children. So think, well, think about this for a moment. Which will probably have more of a lasting impact next 20 years? The kids being taught in Iwana or me teaching you? Uh, that will have a greater impact than what I will do. And the value of people in a church is elevated in love. So love then bears all things, believes, hopes, endures. We work through the struggles as a church. This is where churches go straight. People having to have their way. Now, I mean, I understand when there's conflict, somebody's probably going to get their way. I got that. I'm a pastor. I've dealt with all that. I've dealt with that here. But the fundamental purpose isn't to get your way. It's to understand what honors God and to try to help people get there. And if people won't get there, well, we'll love them whether they stay or leave. But it's that ongoing desire to have unity and to get where we need to be. Many times in my ministry, I have sat down with people and said, okay, we've got to get this figured out. What's going on? And sometimes we work through it, and sometimes it's just not going to happen. But I, I'll still love them. I'll love them as they go somewhere else a whole lot more. But the point is to try to get us on the same page. And if you can't, you can't. And I've dealt with that. 
But for the church's sake, you need unity. You need to be together. And if someone says, I'm not willing to give in to where the church is going, then love them and give them the freedom to go away. Because the unity of the church matters. The problem is that happens without love. And that's always a struggle. In Bridgeport, there was a guy that was so mad at me. Everything I did, he just, it drove him nuts. He just, he, and, and eventually he left. And my favorite thing to do in a small town was to see him and to go up and be really nice to him because I know he hated every minute of it. But I was showing love to make him miserable, but still show love. Here we go. I got to hurry up. Love never fails. It doesn't mean that you won't fail. Love is always victorious. Now, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. Someday, ain't going to be nobody preaching. Ain't nobody need to preach when Christ comes again. There are tongues, they will cease. Oh, yes, they will. We don't even need tongues in our church. We don't have anybody speaking tongues. We don't need that. They, other churches do it, fine. It doesn't help us any. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know in part, oh, this, and this part gets me, and we prophesy in part. I'd like to think I know in full, and I preach in fullness. I'd like to think 40 years. Who knows what to say? This guy right here. I don't. I can't tell you how many times I'm like, I don't understand that. Sometimes when I'm getting ready for a sermon, <coughs> I say, Lord, I ain't got that figured out yet. I'll just not mention that in my message. <laughs> because we don't know it all. Anybody that knows it all, run. Run. Any preacher that has all the answers, Run, because we don't. And love means you understand that. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When Christ comes in all his glory, everything will be full. Paul says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put away childish things. Do you know what is childish? Thinking that because you have a particular gift, you're more important to the life of the church than somebody else. That's immature. God, that's just foolishness. I'm not. So some of the deacons here, I love you guys. I'm not picking on you. Please, sometimes they pick on you. This is one of those times I'm not really picking on you. But over the years, I've had guys join my church that I pastor, not my church, church I pastor. And one of my things is, they'll come and say, now, preacher, I just want you to know I'm a deacon. And my first thought, that I, every single time I'm told that, I want to say, I don't care. Because I don't. It doesn't mean anything. What are you telling me? I've known lots of deacons that should have never been deacons. All of you guys here that are deacons are good to go. Hang on, let me check. Most of you guys here that are deacons are good to go. And I'm like, So? Here's what you got to do. You're going to come to the church I pastor. 
You're just like everybody else. You ain't special. Well, you're special like everybody else is special. You demonstrate to me that you have a servant's heart and all that, and we'll let you serve. And don't worry if you ever get to be made a deacon, because it don't matter. Because who cares? They just don't. They don't care. You think anybody cares when I walk into a restaurant and I'm a pastor? You know, when I go to Denny's, they don't have a pastor's discount. <laughs> I have a 55-plus discount. And one day I'll take it. <laughs> they don't care. You think, you think the children in, in, over in Cubbies care that I'm the pastor? They don't know who I am. They don't know that I'm the pastor. And if they did, they don't know what a pastor is. They don't care. You know what they care about? It's the teacher that loves them. That they care about. They care more about the person who loves them. My wife is great with preschoolers and children because about 75% of them she loves. And they know, they know my wife loves them. Me? They don't know. It's not that I don't love them. I'm just not really capable of demonstrating love to a five-year-old. All I do is bribe them with food. Paul says, we see in the mirror dimly, then face to face. I know in part now, but I will know fully just as I have been fully known. One day I'll know it all. I'll know fully, but not right now. In mirrors, we, know we have really clear mirrors. Back then, mirrors were polished metal. If you were rich, you might have a good mirror. The average person never really saw themselves well. You look in the water. He said, we, we, everything, everything now is dim or faded. But then he comes to the last verse, which really needs, there's no explanation needed. I don't know why preachers take this last verse and try to explain it. How? I think Paul does a pretty good job. He said there are three things that abide forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest is love. In eternity, there will be faith, hope, and love will still be there. We'll still have faith in Christ. It's realized. The hope is realized. It's all realized. And there is the ultimate love. <clears throat> nobody preaching in heaven. Nobody going to be speaking in tongues in heaven. But in heaven, our faith and our hope are realized. And love is everywhere. So the church needs to experience that love. It's easier said than done. I know that. It can be tough. But remember this about love. Love doesn't manipulate. It doesn't leverage people. Love is free and without condition to everyone, even the people that seem like you could never truly like them. We joke, I can love you in the Lord. Well, there are a lot of people that you may not like to be around, but there's a high expectation that you love them, even if. Well, it's right at seven, and because I love you, I'm going to let you go. <laughs>